This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 4th of February 2023 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House here in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up, we'll have a look through the front pages with Latika Burke. Author James Crawford questions the future of national borders and... We learned this week that we are all but extras in a desperately feeble remake of From Russia with Love. That's Muller. Andrew Muller, giving us his take on the last seven days. It's all coming up here in the next 30 minutes. But first, here's the news. A Chinese spy balloon has changed course and is now floating eastwards at about 60,000 feet over the central United States, demonstrating a capability to manoeuvre, the US military said on Friday, in the latest twist to a spying saga that led US Secretary of State Antony Blinken to postpone a visit to China. Pope Francis, the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Church of Scotland moderator will meet people displaced by war in South Sudan and hear their stories today in one of the high points of their visit to the struggling African nation. The three Christian leaders on an unprecedented pilgrimage of peace will later take part in an open-air ecumenical prayer vigil with 50,000 people expected to attend. And a Spanish high court has ruled in favour of a man who was fined for walking naked through the streets of a town in the region of Valencia and later tried to attend a court hearing in the nude. Public nudity has been legal in Spain since 1988. Let's have a look at the day's papers now with Latika Burke, who's a journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Latika, are you tempted to walk around with no clothes on? Uh, Not today. Not today. I think that would not be a very nice experience for any of us in the studio this morning, Georgina. But happy weekend to you. (laughs) I think, though, uh, that during coronavirus, many, many more people than one could imagine uh, did things like broadcast in the nude or work in the nude. I mean, when you're sitting at home with nobody around, it would be tempting, wouldn't it? I seem to remember there was that incident of the Zoom. Was it a Canadian a member of parliament who kind of flashed a little more <laughs> of his wares to his colleagues than perhaps he was intending? Uh, it was a very strange time. Wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, here we both are fully clothed, uh, just to reassure our listeners. Uh, Latika, what have you been up to this week? Well, I've had a really, uh, actually quite a moving week, Um, headed uh, to the south of England. Can't say exactly where, but it was an army training base. And it's one of the bases where Ukrainian civilians are being trained by predominantly British, but a a coalition comprising now 10 countries um, of of, uh, army um, and and military personnel, basically uh, putting Ukrainians through a very intensive five-week course this kind of stuff that they're getting taught would normally be taught to army recruits in six months, but the Ukrainians are undergoing this in, in five weeks. What they're learning is uh, how to take out the enemy, how to be lethal on the on the battlefield, how to hide and evacuate themselves from dangerous situations, i.e. artillery fire. We watched one exercise where they were being taught how to uh, essentially drag themselves along the ground. So say you're laying flat on the ground and 
test the ground in front of you for landmines. Um, and in this particular scenario, one of their um, uh, you know, fellow Ukrainians in, in the mock exercise had been injured up ahead. And to get to him, they had to, of course, test whether there'd be more mines in the ground. Another scenario we watched uh, quite a few Ukrainians do was testing a, a body. And, and in this case, it was actually quite scarily real because it was an amputee, ex-military amputee who'd come in for this exercise. And uh, he was holding, you know, a, a booby trap, a grenade, and they had to simulate how they would find this sort of uh, body in the battlefield and then test it to, to make sure that that grenade did not indeed go off when, when they rushed to rescue their friends. So it was very real, but it was also very mock. And it was this really bizarre kind of situation where you realise it's so real what you're seeing in front of you, but then the reality is is so much more brutal than what we could even imagine unless you're there. And um, one experience really did floor me because this was all part of a media a day. Australia has just joined this effort to, to train Ukrainians. And so we had our defence minister and our foreign minister touring along with the foreign secretary of the UK and the defence secretary of the UK. So it was quite a big deal. And we were, um, we, we'd asked, of course, to interview some Ukrainian recruits. And the first person we interviewed was this woman. Now, you they had to be all covered, their entire faces. So you couldn't really tell or see too, too much about them in terms of their physical features. But Georgina, the minute you see her frame, you know she's a woman. You can tell by uh, the wrinkles around her eyes that she's probably just a bit older than me, maybe your age. Um, and she's standing there in, in army fatigues. We interviewed her through a translator. She's not speaking any English. Um, and she just starts crying as she's telling us that she has this, you know, love for her daughter, her love for her motherland. She has no choice but to go and fight. And I kind of asked her, you know, how do you go from being this mother to a warrior? And aren't you scared about when you go back and, and fight? She's never fought before. She says, no, I, I'm not scared at all. This is what I have to do. And it was just honestly the bravery and her, her heroism of a woman choosing that sort of future for herself was just honestly really so humbling quite exceptional and I mean uh, as we know women are, are not there's no conscription for them they're allowed to leave no. the country uh, and it seems what bravery for, for a middle-aged woman to decide that that is her choice she gave me this great quote Georgina um, she said uh, you know I'm stronger than half the men here <laughs> <laughs> and, and we got a little laugh out of her when she said that and it was it was nice to see but I, uh, I actually did not doubt that yeah Let's turn to this very bizarre Chinese balloon. It's, it's uh, dominating headlines across the world, unsurprisingly, because, of course, the Chinese say that it's just a weather balloon or some kind of civilian thing. But now, it's as we're reporting in our headlines, it's clear that it can manoeuvre. Well, weather balloons don't really do that. I don't <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, and what interest in the weather over America they have. <laughs> How um, bizarre. But, but it has prompted a diplomatic storm just at the time when the US and China were trying to, to mend ties. Yeah, and that's what's so critical about this. I mean, it's very weird to see this Chinese spy balloon being flown over the United States. Just in the last few hours, they found what they say is a second one flying over Latin America. So clearly it's part of a, a larger strategy. 
Um, and as you say, Anthony Blinken has postponed this visit to China. It would have been his first since 2018. And we all know, of course, listeners of Monocle are well-versed in the huge uh, rupture, I guess, in, in the re- rupture in the relationship between the United States and China. So this was going to be a very positive weekend in, in this relationship. Um, Biden and Xi had been told very clearly by world leaders that the world expected these two superpowers to find a way to get along. This was going to be the start of putting up some of these guardrails, uh, so-called, around the relationship. And now it's not going to happen. But Anthony Blinken has this morning, interestingly, been reassuring people that he's postponed, not cancelled, his trip, a really important distinction. And he's also stressed that the United States is keeping open these diplomatic lines with China. They expect the same of China. So really, it's kind of been a more sedate response from the United States. I mean, we've seen some of the more hawkish elements of the Republican Party calling for this balloon to be shot down and some more uh, extreme rhetoric. So while Anthony Blinken is getting some criticism for maybe overreacting, I do think this is probably a bit more moderate. Interesting, too, to see China actually acknowledge that this is their balloon. And they did say that they regretted that it had erred in its course. Um, now they're putting out a, a, a few more stronger statements saying, you know, this is the, the West interfering and, and the usual court sorts of bellicose remarks that we expect from China. But uh, I did think that was an interesting concession from their side, too. But very, very odd. I mean, when when this very important meeting was about to take place. So it might seem that perhaps it was unplanned. I think so. Um, the other thing is just what are they getting out of these spy balloons? I mean, we've got very sophisticated satellites now that can observe from the sky. We've got drones that can also observe. Um, it's almost a, kind of a 1950s sort of technique, isn't it? <laughs> it absolutely is. Well, let's let's talk about sort of 50s spies and stuff because here's Andrew Muller with what we learned this week. We learned this week that we are all but extras in a desperately feeble remake of From Russia With Love. He threatened me at one point and said, you know, uh, Boris, I don't want to hurt you, but uh, with a missile it would only take a minute or something like that, you know. We learned that while Boris Johnson was Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, and a reminder at this point that Boris actual Johnson being actually put in charge of an actual country was an actual thing which actually happened, President Vladimir Putin of Russia menaced him personally at one especially delicate point in negotiations with the prospect of a missile strike. Choose your next witticism carefully, Mr Bond. It may be your last. That's from Goldfinger, isn't it? No, whatever. We very shortly subsequently learned, however, that there was some reason to doubt a version of events adumbrated by Boris Johnson of all people. No. Really? Oh, that blows my mind. No way. Blow me down. Shocked as you are, etc. We learned that Russia, as is traditional, denied everything, which means that we might also have learned that Russia had failed to consider just how large a plurality of British voters might well have reacted to President Putin's threat with sentiments along the lines of, oh, come on, let's hear the fellow out. All computer as you see, I am about to inaugurate a little war. That's not from Russia with love either.
Sticking with the subject of debatably trustworthy posh Englishmen undertaking a process of attempting to persuade the lower orders that they're not such a bad chap after all, we also learned a surprising amount about the size of bathtub into which Prince Andrew will not fit. We learned this from the Daily Telegraph, the venerable masthead once regarded as the house journal of stolid, sensible British conservatism, which has regrettably spent the post-Brexit epoch substantially having what we believe the young folks refer to as a normal one. It feels like a good moment to emphasise, for the benefit of our international listeners, that we are absolutely not making any of the following up. We learned from the front goddamn page of last Saturday's Telegraph that whoever is now handling Prince Andrew's PR had determined that the best way of clearing their client's name was to get two fully clothed people to sit in a bathtub whilst obscuring their faces with pieces of laminated A4 paper bearing the images of Prince Andrew and Virginia Dufre, that woman Prince Andrew has never even ever met, much less mistreated in any way whatsoever, but to whom he nevertheless gave 12 million quid in an out-of-court settlement roughly this time last year. Where's the awkward coughing clip? <coughs> We learned, once retrieving our monocle from the marmalade and scrutinising the copy accompanying this curious tableau, that the point of the exercise was to refute suggestions that among the places that the prince did not even ever meet, much less mistreat in any way Ms. Giuffray, was this very bathtub, believed to be in the former London abode of child trafficker Ghislaine Maxwell, whose indisputable long-standing friendship with the prince is maybe not something of which he should be quite so keen to remind people. <coughs> Anyway, we learned that the former bathtub of Ms. Maxwell, who is currently enduring 20 years of somewhat less comfortable accommodations than those to which she had been previously accustomed, measures, and we hope you're writing this down, 1,359mm by 380mm, which we learned from the Telegraph story is apparently not big enough. Except that we learned from the Telegraph's photo that it very clearly is. Can I get some general muttered agreement? Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We have learned, basically, that Prince Andrew has not learned that it is unwise to retain reputation managers whose work attire is dominated by big shoes, red noses and lapel flowers which squirt water and who commute in very little cars. And persisting with the automotive motif... We learned, as we so very often do in the course of researching these monologues, that people, as a species, are often very reluctant to learn very obvious things. Like, for example, the perils of continuing to drive one's car past roadblocks adorned with flashing hazard lights and signs bearing warnings including but not limited to stop and road closed. Drivers disregarding signs up for their own safety, steering straight into a 12-foot-wide crevice. We learned that this live-action metaphor for absolutely everything had been enacted near the California settlement of Tracy, hitherto best known as the residence of large-trousered, bad-in-the-90s rapper MC Hammer. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. No, no, and nope. 
While it remains vexingly unclear as of this broadcast whether the generously pantalooned Here Comes the Hammer hitmaker is one of the heedless scofflaws involved, we did learn that at least three cars within the last fortnight have been claimed by a highway sinkhole caused by recent floods, in every instance after being driven around the fortifications and warnings erected by exasperated local police. And we learned that one local resident had been moved by this recurrent folly to the spontaneous coinage of as accurate a summation of the human condition as we may hear in our time. People are so stupid, I can't even believe it. Preach, brother. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you very much to Andrew. Some fantastic stories coming out of Australia in the, in the last few days. That capsule was found, for yes, instance. Yes, the radioactive capsule that's a couple of centimetres wide and they found it in, I don't know, a search radius of ginormous proportion of kilometres, but it was literally like finding a needle in a haystack and they found it. Extraordinary. Of course, the other big Australian story is the new banknotes. Yeah, this is really interesting. So we're up for a redesign, of course, of of, um, the banknote, the $5 one. Um, And normally, well, last mm, decade or two, it's had Queen Elizabeth II on it. So the presumption would have been that it would have King Charles III. Uh, Not so fast. The new government, which is a, a Labour government, it would like Australia to be a republic, has stepped in and said, no, we're not having... Charles on the banknotes, we're going to have a first Australian instead. So a really interesting move because we're nowhere near having a republic referendum. And I think there would be some expectation that some of those sorts of decisions might be taken in Australia after any republic uh, poll that was successful. But uh, the government is now being accused by some who support the monarchy of republicanism by stealth. Um, but generally, there is a, a strong mood in Australia for more recognition of Indigenous Australians over, say, our, our royal history and ties there. And we're, we're leading up to a big referendum in Australia uh, on The Voice. So this is all very contextual. It's a big conversation in the country at the moment. And this voice would be about giving Indigenous Australians a recognition in the constitution and an official voice to the parliament over policies that apply to them. So mm. a really interesting time. And um, I do, I mean, there's always been a view in Australia that when the Queen died, that would be the time to reopen this conversation. Not many expected that it would align so perfectly it has with a government that would then push for a republic. There's no way the Conservatives in Australia would ever push for a republic. Um, they would likely vote against it. But in terms of uh, Labor, yeah, they would love to see the country sever ties with the monarchy. I mean, and I see that, that Penny Wong, uh, the politician, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, has been in, in London and she's been talking about how Britain has to face its colonial past. Well, it was quite the diplomatic storm, to be honest. Um, Penny Wong has been a foreign minister who has not really put a, a foot wrong since she became foreign minister nine months ago. And she's focused heavily on reorientating Australia's uh, foreign policy towards ASEAN in particular, the Asia-Pacific. It's certainly where Labor has always culturally held a view that it sees its future, both um, security-wise and, of course, uh, economically. And the Labor Party in Australia has much stronger affinity, I would say, with uh, the United States. They're, they've kind of come up in that culture of Irish Catholic um, culture, so they have much more ties that way. Whereas the right wing uh, in, in Australia 
has really developed over the last few years a much stronger relationship with Britain than, than we've enjoyed in, in decades past. So it's taken a long time for the foreign minister to come to the UK. When she did, she gave a speech that uh, she actually didn't really want to give um, in, in London, but she was asked to by her diplomats. And she stood up and said, well, Britain, you must face your colonial, you must confront your colonial past if you wish to have influence in the Asia-Pacific region. Now, this, of course, was quite the stir because um, many in Australia saw this as Australia hectoring uh, the old colonial master flying in to basically insult another country. And Australians get very offended if that happens our way. Um, So I uh, sidled on up to James Cleverly, the Foreign Secretary, when I I was uh, there with him at a media opportunity in in the week and asked him if Australia had indeed been confronted, uh, if, sorry, the UK had confronted its colonial past. And he said, uh, you're asking the Black Foreign Secretary? And um, and these are direct quotes. And I said, yes, yes, I am. Uh, That's, you know, what our Foreign Minister would would like to ask you. And he said, well, I think uh, the answer is yes, you're looking at it. Um, And that was a pretty extraordinary repost from an ally. So that uh, also went down like a lead balloon in Australia and there was some serious concern that the foreign minister had overstepped in in her first speech and in her first visit to the UK. So there was a a fair bit of uh, amending, I think, behind the scenes. Um, But in the end, uh, James Cleverly and Penny Wong actually did get along very well at their official meeting that was held on Friday uh, or Thursday. I'm losing track of the days, Georgina. Thursday it was in Portsmouth. And um, and Cleverly did actually raise it all with her and said, yes, we're very aware and I'm very conscious as Foreign Secretary of uh, our role as former colonialists and what that means in Asia and how we conduct ourselves in Asia. And um, by all accounts, the week has ended a lot better than it started for Penny Wong. Mm. It's great that the Conservative governing party here in Britain is much more diverse than it's been previously. However, if you look at, particularly at some of the prominent women in it, they do seem to be much more right-wing than indeed the the, the, the rest of the party. Sue Ella Braverman, I'm thinking of, uh, the Home Secretary, with her very, very stringent uh, And she's a Buddhist. Policy. If well, you, if you ever knew that, doesn't appear to be a. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there's a mistake that some people make that diversity automatically means you're left wing, or that uh, the progressive side of politics has a hold on diversity. In fact, in this country, the progressive side of politics has done worse on on diverse outcomes. In Australia, it's the other way round. The left, um, the Labor Party is doing much better on diversity than the right wing. Uh, I think it all matters because ultimately, the point of diversity is that. Anyone and everyone can hold particular views and, and it's not really about our skin colour shaping those views. It's about our life experiences, our upbringings and all those cultural uh, factors and ingredients that go into make our wonderfully complex humans that we are. Absolutely. Although, I mean, lived experience should be part of it and both Priti Patel and Suella Braverman come from families who had immigrated to this country. Uh, it's classic, I think, classic example of pulling up the ladder, isn't it? In, in Australia, this is a very strong theme. When we had um, a decade of, you know, tussling over boats and what to do with asylum seekers, if we turn them back on on the high seas or not. It it was very often remarked and observed that in Australia, the strongest supporters of turning asylum seekers back were those who just made it in themselves. You know, they turn around and, and pull up the ladder. I think that's a very common theme around the world, actually. Well, my next guest is going to be talking about just that. Uh, Latika, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. That was Latika Burke. And this is Monocle on Saturday. Monocle's February issue celebrates places that work, 
providing a roll call of appealing outposts that will inspire and encourage you for the new year ahead. From a top transport system to a seemly city hall or cultural HQ. Elsewhere in the issue, we meet the perky Brazilian coffee company that has crossed to Europe with ease and visit the car plant in Morocco that's revving up the nation's commitment to renewables. And then, as usual, there are reviews of the best hotels, restaurants and travel hotspots to pack your diary with throughout 2023. Order your copy of Monocle's February issue today or subscribe to get instant access online. Israel and Palestine, Mexico and the US, Russia and Ukraine. Has humanity's enduring obsession with borders brought us to a crisis point? A new work examines whether we're entering the end game of a process that began thousands of years ago when we first started dividing up the earth. The book is called The Edge of the Plain, How Borders Make and Break Our World. And I spoke to the Scottish-born writer, historian and presenter James Crawford about it earlier. I began by asking whether James could define just what a border is. People would understand a border as, as a line that separates two nations you know, two territories, one one from the other. And, you know, it, it's part of the very concept of sovereignty. And, you know, uh, people forget where sovereignty comes from. It you know, comes from a monarch. And, and this system that was developed 350 years ago, which was giving the monarch the right to decide what religion was practiced within a set geographical area, at which point we had to define what those geographical areas were. So that gives you a territorial boundary. And that's where nations come from. You know, nations did not exist before this. So the, the concept of nationalism emerges out of this. Shared stories for those inside the lines. What we have got to now, you know, after two world wars, and, you know, you could argue that those two world wars were fought over those shared stories about people trying to expand those borders. You know, that concept of Lebensraum comes from the idea that, that nations were alive that the border was almost like an epidermis, like a skin. And, and you know, some uh, German political theorists thought that actually to survive, a nation had to grow. So you have that period of expansion. You have two world wars that are fought. You get to the point where we are now, where I think borders are less about dividing nation from nation and much more about dividing rich from poor, mm. um, about trying to manage migrant flow um, around the world. And the UN has said that, you know, this year there's over... 100 million displaced people for the first time in history. And there are others displaced by war, by conflict, by, by climate change. So you have a lot of global movement and borders are about trying to manage that global movement more than anything else. And, I mean, in, in the last few decades, we've seen many more walls go up to keep people out. That's right. You know, at the end of the Cold War, the Berlin, Berlin Wall comes down. There's about 12 border walls around the world at that point. Now there's 74 and climbing. So, you know, that's a sixfold increase. You know, there's, there's more of more of this being constructed. But I do think these walls are less about actually stopping people. You know, the, the, the research suggests they don't really stop people to any great degree. They certainly don't stop people trying to cross. But what they do do is appeal to a voter base, you know, and we've seen that with Trump's wall in America. You know, that was very much about appealing to a specific border uh, voter base, not actually about stopping people crossing the border. You know, there's still hundreds and hundreds of miles of, of wall unconstructed. So it's not it's not about that. It's it's about something else. And increasingly, you know, these these borders 
are symbols. You know, they're symbols of an old system and the actual bordering is happening elsewhere. You know, these borders are pushing further and further outwards. You know, you look at the, the UK government's Rwanda policy, that's about outsourcing a border, outsourcing a border 400 miles to the south, you know, looking for a country that will that will take refugees. So in effect, you only cross the UK border once you've landed in Rwanda. Um, the American Border Patrol have been operating in Guatemala since 2019, trying to discourage people from, from making that journey northwards to the US-Mexico border. So borders are always moving outwards right now, and they're very much about controlling migration flow. Mm. And a lot of that migration flow, of course, is, is uh, driven by either economic hardship or very much related to that climate change. Yeah, that's, I mean, climate change is, is the big disruptor. You know, if you, if you think about why borders exist, it, 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 they're, they're always the story that a border tells is that it's always there forever. Because why would you tell a story about being contingent? You know, that's that's the idea. This is our territory and this is where it always should be. I mean, the history of borders is the borders actually move and shift and change and bend all of the time and break and disappear all of the time. But with climate change, what we have now is, if you like, the ultimate border for humans, the only true border for humans, which is where we can live. And, you know, there was a study done in 2020 that looked at what's known as the human climate niche. And if you think of it, this is the ultimate human border. And it was looking to ask the question, is there a temperature band within which humans have tended to live throughout history? And they found that, yes, very much there is. It's between about 11 to 15 degrees centigrade average mean temperature. And about 95% of the planet has lived within that band for the past 6,000 years. Looking forward in time, in the next 50 years, that temperature band, which has stayed relatively stable and pretty much in the same place, is going to shift more than it has in those last six millennia. And it's going to shift northwards and it's going to shift southwards towards the poles. So, you know, large parts of the tropics, places like India, Central Africa, the Sahel, might find themselves living in conditions where human beings, the vast majority of human beings, have tended not to live. And the study extrapolated forward and said, well, if they are not going to live in these conditions, how many people are we talking about who might move? And the figure they came up with is around 3 billion, which potentially by 2050 is a third of humanity. That doesn't mean they will move, but it does suggest that mass movement driven by climate change is on the way. And we have to have a way to deal with that. And the way to deal with that is looking at how we operate our borders right now, because they're not sustainable. How should we operate them? I think there are a number of ways we could look at it. One, and I think that, you know, this would be the, this would be the, in some respects, a radical thing, but at the same time, it would deal with the problem. I mean, borders, we're not going to start erasing borders from the map. We're not going to take a rubber and, and, and say, you know, France is no longer here, Germany is no longer here. The stories are too deeply ingrained. One way we could change things is looking at a human right to move. And we've never looked at this before. You know, and if you think about the, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, that emerged out of a catastrophe, which was the Second World War, and particularly the Holocaust, and the way that people were treated. And it may take another catastrophe, it may take a climate catastrophe, to, to add this human right to move. Because there is a right to move within your territory of origin. There's a right to leave your territory of origin and come back to it. But there isn't a, a universal right to move wherever you want. Perhaps there is a way of developing that. And perhaps it becomes inarguable that we need to develop it if parts of the planet are uninhabitable. Or in the case of some low-lying nations, 
are going to be entirely submerged by the sea? What do they do? Do they cease to exist as nations? We've never had to deal with this before. What happens when a country disappears? And as we look to the future, we're going to have to find ways of dealing with it and legal mechanisms of dealing with it. And perhaps a universal right to move could be one of them. That was James Crawford talking about his book The Edge of the Plain, How Borders Make and Break Our World, which is published by Norton in the US and Canongate in the UK. You can hear an extended interview with James on Meet the Writers, our flagship literary show, which will be broadcast tomorrow, that's Sunday, at noon London time, and thereafter available on our website. And that's all for today's programme. Monocle on Saturday returns at the same time next weekend. I'm Georgina Godwin. Much more from me throughout the day, but for now, thank you for listening. Thank you.